This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What is going on, Walkheaders? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast. We have been super, super busy. Um, if you guys haven't checked it out yet, we've completely revamped our website. Go check it out, digitalwildcatters.com. We recently just dropped uh, a completely new platform that we call The Bullpen. And so this is uh, a way for tech companies to present their technologies to the world. And so it's full-length demos uh, that we've recorded here in our studio and are putting it out. And so we've got, uh, I think, five companies on there currently. We're targeting, uh, and at the time of recording, we're in May 2020. Uh, so by the end of May 2020, we're looking to have 20 companies on uh, the bullpen. So if you think your company's a fit, please uh, reach out, and we would love to uh, to include you guys on that. So uh, this week, we sat down with Brock Myers, CEO of Wise Rock. Uh, and so this was a really great episode. It was our first time back recording, uh, you know, after the quarantine. Uh, and so I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. We, we really dove more so into his personal story, his personal mission. Uh, and I think uh, you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. So really quickly, before we get into that, with the rapidly changing price environment in oil and gas, it's important to stay lean and flexible. And that's why Auburn Energy Management is offering full-scale upstream asset operating and technical advisory services to workout firms, financial institutions, and investors of distressed oil and gas assets. The best part, these services are offered without the requirement of the asset owner giving up working interest or royalty interest in the actual asset. This allows Auburn to eliminate conflict or competition across their clients and allows the asset owner to capture as much value and upside as possible. This fee-based, flexible G&A model provides a cost-focused approach to asset management on a scalable platform that has allowed Auburn and parent company Sierra Hamilton to execute $1.5 billion in capital projects across every major producing basin in the lower 48, Alaska, and the Gulf of Mexico. Their large network of field personnel, all the way up to the C-suite executives, allows them to be basin agnostic and help clients wherever they might be. Quick example, a credit fund recently took ownership of an asset after a restructuring settlement Auburn can operate the asset on behalf and reduce the GNA expenses for this fund by 70%. If you need a cost-effective solution to manage your assets, visit Auburn Energy Management at auburn-energy.com or click the link in the show notes below. What is going on, Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the show. I'm excited. We haven't recorded many podcasts in the last month. Most people don't know that, but we usually batch these. So we yeah. are in the studio with... Oh, am I doing it? We got Brock <laughs> with Wise Rock. What's going on, There's a drum roll. There's a terrible drum roll. <laughs> we need one of those soundboards where you yeah, got the, the noises. So, <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it's funny because, you know, I, I talked to Jake for the first time last last week on Thursday and kind of chatted for a while. And he said, you know, we usually have a backlog of quite a few people before we, you know, need to publish it weekly. Uh, could you come in tomorrow? Uh, you know, <laughs> I said, hey, can you give me till next Tuesday? You know, it's a pretty big deal for, for the company. But yeah, so luckily he, he let me do that. Well, we were fortunate that we have such a big backlog with everything that was going on with COVID. But, you know, now people are starting to wander out and, you know, at least be safe with social distancing. So we got, you know, I don't know if we got six feet here, but we're, we're appropriately yeah, we're, distanced. We're at least four and a half. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so, Brock, tell me a little bit uh, about uh, what you guys are doing real quick, and then we'll dive into your story and, and what's got you to this point. Sure. Yeah. Wise Rock um, 
is the name of our company. And, and um, basically what we do is production optimization and production surveillance. We help engineers to really dramatically improve the way they do that. Um, and it wasn't our plan, but you know, we really feel like um, we're kind of in the right place at the right time to help the industry right now because if you're, you know, you're shutting in a lot of wells, even, you know, obviously slowing down drilling as well, even if all the wells in an asset are shut in, what, what's a production engineer to do? What's a reservoir engineer to do? It's about look back analysis and it's mm -hmm. about working on the job and not in the job. You know, we've all been firefighting for so long and um, that, you know, you usually don't have time to do the analysis you're wanting to do. And, and really what, what Wise Rock is, is a platform. It's a, it's a foundation um, for um, just as much analytics as you want to put on top of it. Um, and so, you know, I can get into that you know, a little bit, uh, you know, of course, after we kind of talk through the history. Yeah. I mean, you brought up a good point. Even if assets are shut in, it's important to be looking at, you know, back testing, looking at the history of that asset. Right. So it's not oh, just yeah. like, you know, production engineers aren't just sitting around twiddling their thumbs while wells are shut in, you know, they're doing analytical processes. And so having tools for that is really important. Yeah, the data is still there. I mean, if you've got 10 years of data in the Bakken and then you shut in the walls for a few months, there's plenty to find in that data that you haven't had time before. Artificial look back analysis, artificial lift look back analysis, workovers, yeah. basically any category of production variants or losses or, you know, reserves hits. Um, you know, you can go back and figure out a lot about that. It takes some time to learn Spotfire. It takes some time to learn Python. Yeah, you know, lean process improvement. There's there's a million ways that we can improve the way we're working, yeah. even while we don't have a lot of work to do. And ultimately, that's going to be more valuable than just doing the work. Absolutely, um, if, if we really do it right. So, what's your background? Are you petroleum engineer, or, or how how did you first learn the problems that production engineers deal with, and you know, how how did you come up with this idea? Yes, uh, I'm a petroleum engineer, uh, Aggie 2010. Okay. Um, and so I, uh, um, yeah, I mean, you know, kind of educationally, I, I started off civil and then I switched over to petroleum when I realized that I'd be working on a 290 street reconstruction project for 20 years of my career. <laughs> and my friend was, had an internship making twice as much money, honestly, doing actual exciting work mm -hmm. um, in petroleum. And, um, you know, after my, my freshman year um, in college, I, I was like, well, man, let's see if I could switch over to the petty department and was able to, and you know, all the transfer, all the credits transferred. And uh, then I got an internship at Hess um, and worked out in Seminole in West Texas for, oh, yeah. for a summer and had nothing to do other than what, what basically was play that? golf. Um, that was uh, 20, 2008. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I did a lot of work for Hess, but I think it was like 2000, I want to say 11, 2000. 10 yeah. sometime around there but yeah so that was a field rotation you know and like i said I, I learned to play golf well they actually do have a golf course there it's mostly sand but uh <laughs> it's fun when there's nothing else to do um and so i learned to golf that summer but uh then um the next year i, I did get asked back for another one and it was in the houston office with the uh, west africa um a deep water um team there at hess and was um, doing reservoir engineering and that's kind of when i first got into or I kind of realized the opportunity that we have with software and with analytics in oil and gas. I was mm -hmm. asked to do a pressure transient analysis project, you know, looking at, at pressure buildups. And, you know, I started to do the project and I realized that the data preparation itself was taking, I mean, if you wanted to look at 15 buildups for a single well and kind of see the, the average reservoir pressure over time, 
you know, you might be spending half a day or more preparing the data and the actual analysis would take 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I had learned, you know, and I went to um, a small school south, south of Houston, southwest of Houston, uh, Needville. And yeah. luckily we had a computer science teacher there. And I, you know, I took the class because I like computers and science. I didn't know what that was <laughs> um, and ended up doing it three years. So I, I knew enough to like learn VBA quickly. And that's pretty much it. And so I, I used, you know, Excel and VBA to put together this tool that um, basically allowed you to very rapidly find the buildups and then mark them and then export them in the format necessary to do the pressure transient analysis. And you could do 15 in five minutes. Um, wow. And it's funny because there's a product out there um, called Diamante that was supposed to do the same thing, part of the Akron suite with Sapphire Topaz. And so I named it Zirconia to be like the cheap version of <laughs> Diamante. And anyway, it's just, it, it just amazed me that, um, that you could have a product that was doing something so sophisticated and they were just using like wave filtration and what we would call data science now yeah. to identify these things. And it was cool, but it didn't take it to the last mile. And that product cost $115,000 per license. Mm-hmm. And uh, a guy there actually brought that company in and showed him the product that I'd hacked together. And he's like, why is this working better? And he's <laughs> like, better I don't than know. What we offer. <laughs> um, it obviously didn't do everything, but for that one specific um, workflow. And, and I kind of thought it was a fluke. And luckily, you know, that oil prices fell in 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, and only three out of, I think, 15 of us got an offer. And the only reason I got the offer is because I did that, not because I did what mm-hmm. I was told, you know, what I was asked to do. Yeah. And... I was like, there's no way that this would happen again. Um, like that was, you know, that seemed obvious. Yeah. Um, and uh, so then I, I got into my senior year and ended up, you know, I came to, to Houston afterwards and, you know, I had actually gotten started learning about startups because I, I learned about passive investing too when I was in Seminole. Yeah. And I realized that, you know, and, and to anyone listening, it really is true. Like, don't be a day trader. <laughs> if you look at the scientific evidence and the empirical evidence, you cannot beat the market. Uh, without being like an activist investor. Oh, and I guess I maybe don't want to say that right now because we do want to re- raise a seed round of, <laughs> from active investors. But yeah, they, they could have, you know, information that the average investor doesn't. And so I wanted to, to build a um, basically an online uh, course for young professionals to teach them, you know, the science of passive investing. And in eight hours, you can learn that you never need to watch, you know, um, your money again. You don't need to spend another hour researching mm-hmm. where to trade and you will retire with twice as much money if you can if you can make if you can save that two percent in cost of active investing. Yeah, if you stay consistent over the long term instead of trying to day trade. Yeah, you know, intraday, day in, day out, and just lose your ass. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of psychological hurdles yeah. you have to overcome. But but basically, it was the first time that I realized that I mean, money's really important to people a lot. Uh, you know, to uh, people mm-hmm. in general, and. Every, the common knowledge, especially at the time, was, of course, you can beat the market. There's very few people that didn't know that. I mean, it was uh, the Nobel Prize winners in economics were publishing papers for 15 years at that point showing it wasn't possible. Mm-hmm. You know, Vanguard, you know, different people were making that clear. But in general, the perception was uh, we should be spending so much money. We should be getting into hedge funds. We should be paying 2% a year for an active investor because he did it for the last five years in a row. And I realized, though, that something so important that I, I, I think I kind of assumed before that in general consensus was usually right um, of the world. And at that time I realized like, whoa, this is a really big deal and it matters to every single person. And yet the consensus consensus is wrong. And, you know, so I wanted to try to build a product for that. It's interesting now because FinTech, you know, you look at companies like Wealthfront, uh, Betterment, 
Mm-hmm. And they actually started trying to build a product that would you know, be an active investing platform. And they used lean startup methods to figure out what was working and what didn't. And they realized like, wait, we can't actually beat the market. So they hired one of the Nobel Prize winner economists to like put together an actual efficient portfolio. And now, you know, that's what they sell is like, you can't beat the market, give us your money, we'll do tax loss harvesting, we'll do, you know, automatic rebalancing, and we'll do all these things that normally you'd have to have tons of money for. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, that was just a big deal to me, because it made me realize that um, it's important to read to really like look at the fundamentals of things yeah. and don't just assume that everyone else already knows the answer. Yeah. And it, you know, it also got me interested in startups and that's when I started reading about startups. So it's interesting that the point that you made, you know, when you made that program uh, to do that analysis, you thought, you know, oh, this is kind of a fluke deal, you know, just a one off, just got lucky, found a problem. But that's what got me excited about tech in oil and gas over the last decade is because when we think about, you know, it wasn't that long ago, you know, like 2017, 2018, when you talked about new technology, everyone started, you know, they talk about downhole mechanical Mm -hmm. technology and what we've done over the past 10 years with horizontals. But I was always interested in digital technology, you know, data analytics, you know, we throw out all the fucking buzzwords that we want. But you start looking and it was just like whatever corner you turned, you know, there was a problem that needed a solution. So it's interesting to think that, you know, back in that time, you know, 2008, 2009, you'd figured out something, but you hadn't, you know, had that aha moment yet of like, hey, there's a bunch of broken shit in this industry right, that needs right. fixing. Yeah. And um, and so then I, I went and, you know, I started started my, my job um, at Hess. I almost actually considered not taking the job because... I really wanted to be an entrepreneur and my mom freaked out and she's like, how can you, you know, turn down the six figure job? Like, that's ridiculous. Like, and I was like, no, that's what everyone says to entrepreneurs, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but I didn't have the guts. And so I, I went ahead and started. And um, honestly, it was a hard time for me because I, it was hard to, you know, care about the job I was doing 40 hours a week when I really wanted to do this startup. Um, and after a while I said, you know what? Like, I, I think it took a year. It's like, I'm going to just try to like completely throw that, that idea away. Um, and I'm just going to focus on oil and gas. Mm-hmm. And I started doing that. And that's when I found that, you know, you read the fundamentals of reservoir engineering by LP Dake. And I love that guy. I mean, he passed away, but he's just so cynical. And I think he wrote this book <laughs> in the nineties and he's just complaining about, you know, the idea that you can run a hundred simulation models now in the nineties and then pick the one that matches. And he's like, that's ridiculous. That's not telling you what the reservoir does. You have to understand the fundamentals first. And he was just sarcastic throughout the whole book, but you know, he's super smart and he like listed seven or he listed 10 things that are very common mistakes that if you do them wrong, like everything else is wrong after. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, on teams that I was on, we were doing seven of them. <laughs> and so I started trying to just explain to people what those things were and I was like, well, if I just explain it logically, then I'll be happy. That wasn't the case. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it just showed like, wow, um, there are billion dollar decisions being made in our industry. And the first assumption can be wrong. And we are destroying capital mm-hmm. at an amazing rate. And I mean, not everything Hess is doing, but, but there obviously there's, there are situations like that where um, you, know, you throw somebody into a position and they haven't done this before um, and, and yet there's a billion dollar decision being made based on that. Jake and I have actually talked about that quite a bit because you talk about you know, in the early stages you make one false assumption and then everything just compounds yeah. on that, that yeah. error you know, from there on so it becomes a big problem. 
I want to unpack, kind of backing up in your conversation a little bit, I want to unpack the point that you talked about. You know, you took the job offer at Hess, even though you wanted to be, you know, an entrepreneur, do the startup life, like you felt that. But, you know, your mom's like, don't be a dumb fuck, take this figure. I mean, we get this all the time, especially from engineers wanting, you know, like, man, I'm working at XYZ EMP. Um, you know, I, I'm not happy here. I want to do my own thing, start my own company. And I like, I always tell people um, to have patience and to learn within your job. And, you know, I believe every job, like I really don't give a fuck if you're serving tables or if you're a janitor or if you're a reservoir engineer at Hess, there's always something that you can learn from your job. And, you know, the jobs that I had over the past decade, I wouldn't be able to do a lot of like, I wouldn't be able to sit here and talk with oh, you yeah. on this podcast. Cause I'd have no idea what I was talking about. Right. So, yeah. you know, I was able to take skills and knowledge from those jobs and then apply them when the time was right to my own companies. But yeah. you know, how, you know, looking back, are you glad that you worked with Hess and you got that knowledge and you got to see these problems firsthand instead of just jumping right into the startup life or would you have done it different? Yeah, it was way better. Um, you know, if, uh, you know, I would have, I would have gone into the finance industry and then Wealthfront was admitted. And I'm like, well, that was dumb, you know? And, uh, <laughs> but that's what I tell patrol engineers too, is like the domain knowledge you have is the hard part. You know, I am a very, very mediocre developer, but because I know how to translate it to a patrol engineer and to an IT department, um, then, uh, you know, my value to a company is dramatically higher than the very best developer at Google who doesn't know yeah, anything absolutely. about oil and gas. That's what I, I tell people all the time. I'm like, the hard part is the domain of yeah. oil and gas. There's so many intricate things in oil and gas, you know, whether you're just looking at reservoir engineering or geology or downhole operations, you know, that's just a couple of components of upstream, right? Yep. <laughs> you're not even taking it. We talked about this for years that, yeah. you know, it's was, it was Silicon Valley with, with all of their hubers come in and try to think they're going to solve problems that guys like you have been working on for years, you know, and they think that they're just going to apply whatever their latest technology is to yeah. issue yeah. X. And then it just solves all the world's problems. That's just not the case. Well, there's a really interesting article I saw on LinkedIn years ago about knowledge clusters. I don't know if there's a book written about it, but basically that's the theory is that people naturally form into knowledge clusters. So if you're a reservoir engineer and you, you spend three years trying to get good at it. And now you know what PTA and RTA and a well test is, but you don't just know what that acronym means. You know all the ways that it works in practice, in reality, and in theory, and whether or not different companies, different industries are using it, um, you know, just how people think about it in general. Um, and that's going to happen in any knowledge cluster because you need ways to communicate efficiently and rapidly between each other. Mm -hmm. And what you, you kind of naturally do is you build up this wall around that knowledge cluster to where somebody coming in for the first time at a minimum feels dumb and you probably treat them like they're dumb too because you don't understand how they don't get it. And so like a developer comes in and you explain what you need and you think you did it really clearly and he thinks he understood you and he goes and works for two weeks and you come back and you're like, this guy has no, you don't just think he doesn't know about reservoir engineering. You think he just doesn't know anything in general. Yeah. So what does that guy do? Say, why would I come here to work in the oil industry when a Google appreciates me and they don't think <laughs> I just fix their computers yeah. and they leave. But there are people, um, and they, they talked about companies and people that use Steve Jobs as an example. You know, you can actually look at a network graph of your connection, say on LinkedIn. And most people, they'll see that there's a cluster of people around them and, and that's it. 
But what if you look at a network graph of certain people, there's multiple clusters and they're the connector between those clusters. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was not intentional. Um, you know, I, I learned the reservoir engineering and the entrepreneurship and then got into data visualization and then more into actual modern software engineering. And, and I, I'd say that I, I don't seem like an idiot in those clusters, at least, you know, like yeah. I, I, I'd come across as if it's worth talking to me and explaining something I don't know, at least. Um, and the value to that is that um, then you can connect and, and you can be that lightning rod of innovation because the IT department keeps, they want to use Hadoop for something. They just can't convince the reservoir team of what to do with it. And the reservoir team wants to under, you know, get their data into a database, into a structure they can use it, but they don't know how. Say, well, hey, you know, this team needs this, this team needs that. You can both work on this really cool stuff and you just connected that. And so your value to the organization and to those clusters goes up dramatically, which then allows you to, you know, also learn more about it. And I think that that's huge is I think that rather than spending 30 years as a reservoir engineer, there's already people that have written 300 papers on every type of, you know, reservoir simulation, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You know, you can try to do that. That's, you know, it's really hard, but why don't you just spend a year or two and especially just read the books, you know, before you start and at different knowledge clusters and you're going to find just massive opportunities there. Yeah. It's really interesting. The analogy of knowledge clusters and, you know, kind of having people that bridge the gaps between the two. Like I think of like 10 years of oil experience for me on the oil field. And then I start interfacing with these like meme guys. Now I can make fucking oil and gas memes like a motherfucker because <laughs> it's so funny. the gap between the knowledge clusters. <laughs> Both of these are great examples because I don't know if you have read mastery by Robert green, but the whole premise of the book is that mastery lies at the intersection of two things that you're passionate about. Okay. That's where true mastery lies. And so with calling it's oil and gas and then memes. And so you can create the best oil and gas memes in the world. And then what you're talking about, same thing with petroleum engineering and then software development, right? And that's where that true mastery lives. And that's where great things happen. And the entire book is built off of that. Yeah. It's really, really good read for anybody who hasn't read that. Yeah. I haven't read that. I'm going to check it out. So you're at Hess. Mm -hmm. What year did you work until at Hess? And were you offshore? Were you on land? Where yeah, yeah it, was, it was always offshore um, West Africa. I, I ended up moving to the production team, which I liked because in reservoir engineering as a young guy, you can say like, look, if you get the, if you get the bubble point wrong on this material balance equation, then that means that we actually don't have any certainty about the reserves in place. And if we drill this well, it might be completely dry. Mm-hmm. We're not drilling that well for eight years. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, maybe you're right, but maybe not. Production engineering, you get immediate feedback the next day on whether or not what you did worked. Yeah. And so I found that as a young engineer, you could prove the value of what you're doing a lot easier than in a discipline that's such a, a further horizon. And that that's was a really good point. Really the right place for me, I think. Um, and I, I, I worked for a guy named Ivan Samuelson, who um, just really gave me a lot of opportunities. Um, I, I learned what Spotfire was and um, the company was not really using it um, to, to its extent that, that you could, but it just kind of blew my mind. Um, and I ended up, you know, the first thing I built, it wasn't with Spotfires before I knew about it, it was this thing called a well test visualizer. And it was really interesting because, um, actually the director of, uh, the West Africa uh, unit there said, Brock, we, we have all these well tests and we know there's information in there. We got 40 wells. We're getting a well test two a month. Um, can you go look for valuable things? And I think maybe you should like, I heard, you know, how to code. Why don't you try to put a system together that would, you would put like ranges of expected values for things like production and pressures. And then if it goes out of that, it would alarm, right? Mm-hmm. This is a very common way people think of exception-based surveillance, which isn't what he called it, but that's what it was. Yeah, I tried that, 
and only because I could hack it together and try like 10 different things in Excel, I realized that that just wasn't going to work. And I started looking at graphing it and I started with a simple line chart, which is what everyone else does. And then, you know, I realized there was too much overplotting. And then I you know, went to a bars and, but that didn't work either. And I basically kept iterating to the point that I had a very unique visualization. Um, and, and I didn't know that there was a science of data visualization at the time, but it basically showed um, the history of the last 25 well tests. Um, and you would look at one well at a time and each column would be every attribute of that well test, which, you know, in offshore, we had like 20, like choke positions and temperatures and pressures and um, whether or not the wells and, you know, um, how long it was in the test separator. And took about two weeks to build that. <laughs> and luckily no one really realized I was doing that at the time until it was done. Uh, and I found that was important. Never go and ask to do something before you have an example of it, because it's very difficult to explain with words. Yeah. And you know, Ivan was fine with that. But what I found was that I was the one doing this job for over a year before that. And I built the tool and then within literally four hours of using it, I found more potential opportunities for production optimization than the whole team had found in the prior year, including myself. And there's you yeah. know, a few of us on the team. And it just blew me away. Like there was no AI in it. There was no data science. There was nothing sophisticated. Just visualizing It was the just data. visualizing it correctly. And you can't build this visualization in Spotfire. It's a very bespoke thing, but it's actually great for correlation analysis, which is what you're doing with well testing. And then I enhanced it by letting you click on a well test and drill into the SCADA. And that just took it another step further because, you know, we'd see a well test that was 40% higher than the last well test. And your eyes immediately drawn to that because of the way the human mind works. Mm -hmm. It's called a pre-attentive attribute. You know, position is one of those. Before you even pay attention, your eye is drawn to a change in position, like bar charts with a 40% high one, and then, and then it goes back down. Yep. You don't need to go and manually set alarms because your eye is drawn to it if you, if you put it in the right way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we'd see like, oh, you click on that well test, drill a SCADA, and that's because that well test actually had a different well and test for the first half of the test. And you could see that very obviously. And, um, and so I ended up doing building similar products, one for tracking deferral, one for production forecasting, um, one, like I said, the well testing, and then, and then another for daily production reporting. And I kind of put together the story of how we could do, you know, integrate them all into one. And, you know, I presented that to uh, the VP of offshore. And again, it was all very visual examples. Like you're not trying to explain an algorithm. It's just like, look, you can see this and it works. Yeah. And I remember he stood up in front of the room of like 40 people and said, what Brock just showed, we're going to do no matter what. <laughs> so let's do it. And, and then at that point forward, I was able to spend all my time building tools for engineers around me and people around me and only doing the work enough to understand if the tool was, was improving things. I love that point that you brought up, you know, trying to tell someone and describe to someone what you, you're going to build so hard yeah. and you can waste all that time and energy or just build it yourself. Like we just went through this. Like you want to, you want to hit them with it? Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, we had this vision, you know, obviously we've, we've had the oil and gas startups podcast and we've had, you know, people like you come on and tell their vision of, um, the company and then, you know, EMP clients reach out investors, yada, yada, yada. Well, we've always had this vision of, Hey, we could create this platform where tech companies can, you know, have a demo walkthrough and we'll have all this cool content and yada, 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 It'll be on our website. And like we tell people and like people just want to get it. So we launched it last week we're like, dude, fuck this. Let's just build it and launch it. So did it convince three startups to come on? And now we just have, I mean, a flood of inquiries from startups yeah. wanting to come on where, I mean, these 
for people that are startup founders, they should be able to, you know, see stuff without having to be able to or explaining it too much. But um, that was just kind of a thing that never we went through. expect anybody to get your vision. You know, like you said, it's much easier just to show somebody or show something that you hack together that is yeah. at least kind of in the direction you want to go. Yeah, yeah. You know, get your MVP up and say, hey, this is what it is. We can reiterate. Yeah. It can be better in the future, but this is what it looks like. So yeah. if you have the ability to do that, that's definitely the way to do it instead of trying to sell someone on a on a vision. So it went really well. Um, I, I ended up um, getting to hire a couple software developers. Or I, I, actually, the IT department hired them. And they weren't the right developers because I didn't know anything about modern software development. Um, and I don't think the IT department did either. They actually didn't want them to be working at Hess because that's harder to maintain as an IT department. You don't want to build things. Uh, most IT departments don't want to build custom things because then they're just called when they break, right? Yeah. Um, and so, it you know, basically the, my boss has said, yes, allow him to hire these and the IT hired them. And that created friction between me and IT leadership for sure. But it it was working. It was going slower for sure. I mean, if I would have, um, you know, that there was definitely wasted time and effort, and it, it took probably two and a half times longer to do everything mm-hmm. that I said I wanted to do. But by the time it was done, then it was more valuable than I realized it would be, and so people were still okay with that. Um, and it, it was going well, and you know, I felt kind of on top of the world there. I, I thought I'd be at Hess for you know fifteen years, you know, yeah. because it was going so well. You know, I was i think yeah, I, you know i was ranked really high you know percentage wise in the company which is kind of what you live for as an employee you know it's like well the best i can do is get a high performance rating and mm-hmm. um and i you know I, I got a high one that year and so i honestly i felt kind of untouchable um which is a bad state to be in but that's how i felt and then ivan said brock like i just found out i'm going back to um denmark he's an expat so i had to figure out where to put you and we don't really nobody has knows because you know this position you're in is weird and um i ended up there's a guy on the on the onshore side that um kind of said like hey brock come to my team and he was buddy buddy you know with the ceo and um seemed like it was going to be a great fit so i sent went to work for him but it turns out he was extremely busy um and he didn't really realize how deep i had gone doing these things for the offshore team mm-hmm. and the pitch was when i joined like actually you can keep doing that but then it became clear that oh, that doesn't line up with his strategy and you know we kind of butted heads quite a bit and basically you know there were there was a time that basically something happened where there there got into this very touchy situation between me it and his team and he called me in the middle of the day and said brock just go home like you know and I said, what are you talking about? He's like, I heard about what happened. I was like, what do you mean? And he said, just go home. And I said, well, aren't you going to like, let me talk to you about it? I've worked for you for three weeks and I've talked to you twice. And I've been at this company for seven years and everyone I've ever worked with, you know, almost everyone says that, uh, that I've done a great job. And now I'm, now you're going to, you're going to treat me like that and not even ask me about my side. He's like, no, go home. And, uh, and honestly, looking back at the time I was furious, but I can see why you know, he was upset. Um, I think Brock's about to call somebody out for category throwdown. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so like, so, you know, one part of my story is that I tell people is that I, I didn't plan to be here. I did not have the guts to leave Hess. I mean, mm-hmm. I didn't have the savings to do that. I wasn't going to do that. Um, one of my friends, Kyle Lamata, he and I kind of both pushed Spotfire forward together at Hess. Like we both learned Spotfire together. 
he quit Hess and went and started Data Fuel, which was to train people on Spotfire. Okay. And I was like, dude, that's awesome. I could never do that. And then, uh, <laughs> and then he was acquired by Rus AI, you know, which mm-hmm. is now uh, Petro AI. But this happened, and and what I say to people is, um, you know, my faith is, is something that's very important to me. And I think a lot of us in business don't talk about that a lot. But for me to tell my story to you guys, I kind of have to. And what I tell people is that, you know, I grew up as a, as a Christian, right? But to me, you know, as mo- a lot of people maybe, um, you know, God exists, you know, it, but it doesn't really affect my life. You know, kind of like Panama is a country. I know it exists, but it, okay, <laughs> you know, that doesn't affect me. Um, and I've seen things now. And I've experienced crazy things that basically over and over in the same direction that I can't not believe not only that he exists, but that he actually cares about me, even loves me and is even willing to guide, you know, what I'm doing, uh, not with words, but through circumstances and through other people and through, um, you know, prayer and reading the Bible, you know, putting ideas in your head. Um, And I've just seen those so many times that, like I said, it's become very real to me. And 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 it's it's it also has a big part into the the ultimate vision of wise rock but um you know at the time one other thing that happened was uh i was reading this book you know with a group in my church and it was called speaking of jesus and the thesis was christians have really screwed things up for the brand of christianity like really badly for the past two thousand years and people you know often are very against you know the people that call themselves christians and he said why don't you just talk about jesus instead and so I was like, well, cool, let's try it. And I started going to people's office all over and just said, hey, what do you think about Jesus? And no one got upset. And I talked to people of every different faith. And it actually led to dramatically improved relationships because we were talking about something real. And I even had, you know, I went at one point, I went and talked to people and asked them if they want to go to this Christian event across downtown. And 40 people said they wanted to go. And a director there, I don't think he's a Christian. He said, well, why don't we just get a bus to take everyone? And it's like a publicly <laughs> traded company paying for a bus to go to a Christian event. And most people aren't Christian going. I was like, this is really weird, you know? <laughs> um, so that was happening. And then this happened where um, he tells me to go home. Um, and I'm walking down the street. I'm going to catch an Uber because there's no bus. And I, was, I rode the bus. Mm-hmm. And this guy walks up to me. Um, and, you know, homeless people walk up to you a lot in Houston. And I'm like, okay, he's going to ask for money. Instead, he says, what's your name? I said, Brock. So Brock, I'm going to pray for you. You look like you're having a hard day. I was like, I don't think I'm looking weird, but okay. And so (laughs) he puts his hand on my shoulder and just starts praying for me for a good two to three minutes and says like, I just know Brock's going to be a great leader one day. And I I remember him saying that. And then he finished and and, uh, I thought he was going to ask for money. He didn't. He just walked away. I was like, that's really weird. Um, And then I got in the Uber and the driver, you know, I had been kind of like, talking to uber drivers about jesus too and i was like oh, i don't know if i should talk to this guy he was playing christmas music on the radio i was like well let me just ask him and i did and then he started telling me the story i mentioned like that there's some things going on in my work and he said you know what i'm actually from nigeria and i had this amazing opportunity to move to europe and i got this job and i worked there for five years and it was the best job i ever had and at one point though this lady was jealous of what i was doing and she falsely accused me of something and my boss found out told her don't you ever do that again or i'll get you fired she then told her boss and he was fired anyway and so he was back in nigeria and was like mad at god why you know now my whole future is gone because of something that clearly wasn't my fault and he said brock but like god that wasn't my plan for you my plan for you no he said he said to this guy um basically he said brock if that wouldn't have happened I now just got my master's degree in psychology and in two weeks I'm going to become a professor 
at a university in the United States and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Cool. And he said, Brock, like maybe God doesn't want you there. It's like, yeah, that's a strange coincidence for us to happen right now. And then the next day I had actually had a, a meeting scheduled with the president of C12. Uh, sorry, I don't know if he's a president, but he's one of the leads of C12 in Houston, which is a group of, it's a group for uh, basically Christian CEOs with more than a million in revenue. And he's kind of mentoring them. Mm-hmm. And I had seen him at a conference and asked to talk to him. And we just happened to be meeting that next day. And I told him what was going on. And it was just crazy how wise he was because he didn't try to convince me himself. He was like, what does the Bible say? And he had it memorized or he just told me the verse. And it was just like very clear to me. Why am I worried? Long story short is that really gave me the confidence to leave. And I left. I ended up leaving. Uh, they actually said, like, if you want to leave, then we'll give you severance. And ended up being five months severance, which is crazy. And it was just that's cool. another story. Yeah. But that finally gave me the confidence to leave. And I, I do want to say this to people out there um, because it's relevant to people that are in between jobs now or are worried about it. Um, I said that I was confident, you know, that this is what I need to do. You know, um, you know, I said it's because I, you know I trust God, and it seems clear. But what I found was is that I had a huge amount of my identity locked up in what I did as a patrol engineer. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, I had some plans to kind of do some analytics consulting, but it turns out no one outside of oil and gas thought I was a good analytics consultant. <laughs> um, and I, I couldn't get out, off the ground. And when it became clear that, you know, my intellect wasn't going to get me another job like the one I had at Hess, I got very anxious and I actually got, you know, depressed even. And, um, and it just kind of, you know, you get to that state and you start to think of all the bad things about yourself. And I was like, you know what? I really was arrogant at Hess and I really did do the wrong thing. And there were other people that I made their job worse because I would just tell them what I thought, um, instead of actually caring how they felt. And it just really, you know, rocked my world and showed me things about myself that I didn't realize. But it also became clear to me that the main problem wasn't the money. It was embarrassment. Mm-hmm. And we had bought a house in uh, Katy. It was 3,900 square feet. We, we, plan on, we had three kids. Um, we plan on having one more. And um, it's like, well, we just need a bigger house. You know, why not? It's in our budget. And then this happened. I was like, we're going to have to sell our house. I don't even like this house. And I don't even care about losing the money. And it ended up being like a $50,000 mistake. What I care is to tell people, I just bought this house. And I made this ridiculous mistake. And now I'm moving into a townhome. It was your ego. You know, it was my ego. But what I found was that when I told people about it, they all liked the story. My two neighbors, which was embarrassing because I moved into them. And then two months later, said, we put a for sale sign up and Katie. <laughs> and I, we went and told them. And they're like, they both said, you know, actually, we always talk about our house is probably too big, too. And they're like, we kind of talked about moving, but we just can't because it's, we haven't been here long enough. And then, you know, we ended up selling our 2015 Honda Odyssey. And I bought the same color of 2006, which is like one fourth the cost. Mm-hmm. And no one noticed. It's just a gray minivan. Yep. <laughs> and, you know, like, and we pay for these things that we think we need. And it turns out my kids liked that townhouse better than that, than the house we were in. Um, and I just realized I don't need to ever buy a house that big. We, we did buy a house again now. Um, and it's about 2,000 square feet. And my kids complain that they want to go back to the other house because <laughs> it had carpet and ours has hard floors now. And, you know, it's just the crazy <laughs> stuff. Um, but it, it just kind of showed me, you know, um, and I, I think this is good for anybody to hear. You know, you can make really good money in oil and gas. And it may be hard to find the same, you know, dollar value in the short term. But, like, for the things that matter in life, the things that make you happy, your family, 
you know, um, going camping, that's like one of the best vacations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just hanging out with friends around the campfire doesn't cost, those things don't really cost money. Yeah. And, you know, poverty level is like 26,000. So if you're, if you can make 50, you're double what you actually need to live. Yeah. I think Um, that's, I mean, great talking points. I mean, especially for what everyone's going through in the industry right now. And, you know, I've never been laid off, but in 2018, when I decided to leave my six figure job and pursue my own ventures, you know, I went from six figures to nothing and always say like, I needed that. I needed to know what it felt like to have no money coming in, see what was actually important. Because just like you said, like all that, all the extra bullshit goes like, you don't need a big house. You don't need nice cars. You need the essentials to live life, to provide, you know, for you, your wife, your kids, and what's the bare minimum that you can do to get by and then, you know, pursue, pursue your ventures. And it's actually funny for me because I got promoted a month before I quit and it was like my second promotion within a year. And I was like, I'm getting too deep (laughs) into this. Like, I'm never going to leave. Like they're treating me too good. I'm getting paid too much. And I think, you know, you talk about your identity being wrapped up in your job. Jake's talked about this before on the podcast that a lot of people identify with their job. And when that's ripped away, you know, that leaves you kind of with an identity crisis. You know, you don't feel valuable. Um, And then you go, you know, try to look for other jobs, whether it's in the industry or outside. And, you know, people, like you said, you know, people don't respect your analytical (laughs) talent outside the industry and you start questioning yourself and i think that you know a lot of people aren't able to see past that and they need to be able to yeah and so to wrap up the history basically i I ended up taking doing a coding boot camp um, which was great because it it was called um coder camp okay Um, and it was the last one that they had in pearland it failed after that okay um but it, it taught me enough to to know about that stuff and so basically i i then got a job at p2 as a product manager which was really cool to kind of see um, the way product management worked at a large company. Yeah. And after that, I went into um, analytics consulting and I had an opportunity to work for, for a company and they hired me and um, to, to help with the forecast, some forecasting stuff. And um, they said at the time, you know, after I'd worked on some things for about a month and a half, they said, you know, we really like what you're building. Um, just go ahead and build whatever you think is best because we hired you really more to be an innovation consultant than an execution consultant Mm -hmm. and just keep us up to date like once a month. And I was like, that's awesome. You know, okay. (laughs) Um, and so I started doing that and, and I basically continued down the same path of production surveillance and optimization, um, and realized that they, there's an opportunity to build something at the core that would enable all the other production optimization, but didn't exist. And I, and I showed a prototype that I'd hacked together in, in D3 and said, like, if we could build this, then it would do these things. Um, and said, if I, if I build this and I show you, then, um, you know, later, once it's done, then, you know, you could license it if you want to. Would you be okay with me doing that, you know, and going down to 20 hours a week? And they said yes. And so then it turned out I had an opportunity to present that. And basically, I went and showed the product to them. And it was the VP of production, um, IT planning and the two production managers there. And I went through my presentation and I, they said, okay, so what's the price? And I told them $360,000 a year. And they were like, Brock, how did you come up with that? I said, well, if you take my hourly rate and you do it for a whole year, then that's how much it would be. Um, and this is dramatically better than anything I could do myself in a short amount of time. And the VP of IT was like, Brock, that's 
you just told me it took one developer four months and you to build this and we have patrol that's 100 times more complex and it doesn't cost that much how can you justify it i said well there's two differences between this software and some of that other software you're describing is that we don't have any competitors doing anything like this and so if you want this functionality right now until we have competitors this is the only place you can get it and number two is that i think it's very defensible that you'll make 100 times return on investment in the first year and it'll be 40 million dollars um, at least in the first year and more the second because mm -hmm. it's about continuous improvement and the vp of production was like yeah that's true and so we basically got all the way to the point that everything is agreed to it's going to be a a, a, a fifty thousand dollar two-month pilot and then go into that that rate and everything was ready to go and then right before this company announced that they're restructuring and there's a spending freeze and um and so we didn't that deal didn't happen um and this was early 2019 and basically you know long story short is we went through a lot of different things during 2019 but we did get our first customers late 2019 it was because we ended up having to survive through consulting and what we really have now is this product that is about what we basically have now is a product that does something very simple um, everybody's got daily oil gas and water production it's probably the, the data that they have the most um, yeah. you know well organized and what we found is that to do exception-based surveillance, you don't really need to look at the pressures and the choke positions and all these other things. Just look at the production. And so the problem is you don't really usually have a very good target. And so what we have is a system that allows you to draw a decline on top of the production and allow you to say this is, you know, with very, very tight accuracy and a much easier interface than a tool like Aries. You can say this is what this well should be doing for oil, gas and water um, in the next 30 to, to 60 days. And every time there's a break in that ability to produce, such as a frack hit or a workover, then you can go and annotate that and categorize it. And so uh, by doing this, um, you now have classified and annotated the data set of everything that affected your wells in terms of the long-term ability to produce. But what we also have is then the ability to track the short-term variance, things like compressor downtime, um, ESP failures, et cetera. And it's a very rapid interface for doing that. And we can actually help companies to do that you know, in less than a week, usually even across hundreds of wells, based on other well notes and information they give to us, we can we can have that data classified. And so that's really, really valuable yeah. for look back analysis. You can now with a single query or a dashboard, and we do build the product to where you can put, um, you basically can connect directly to our database in the cloud with any product such as Spotfire or, um, you know, Power BI, whatever you want to use, Python and you can build all kinds of dashboards and we're building up a library um, uh, on top of these data sets and so what you can ask now is tell me how many frack hits i've experienced across every wall in the company mm -hmm. um, and what was the reserves degradation because we have the arps decline before and the arps decline after um, and i can also because we can attach the metadata and you can attach any metadata you want to to any of these events uh, the child frack is there and now i have the relationship because i have the xy coordinates of each well between distance and reserves degradation and the quality of the data is extremely high it's very difficult for companies to track reserves degradation right now with the tools out there because you really need something you can drag and, and adjust you know the decline manually um, versus trying to type in an excel or you know, try to use a tool mm -hmm. like aries that just isn't built for that we have the same thing for workovers we can tell you the wedge of production of every single lift install you did every single you know tubing repair and basically any category of either variance or capacity change that happened in the full history of every one of your wells is now well classified and annotated. The Google director of research has a quote where 
He said, um, more data beats clever algorithms, but better data beats more data. And, you know, they're trying to build self-driving cars. Um, and so mm -hmm. that means that they're paying literally hundreds of people every single day to sit there and annotate 30 frame per second video. And they might spend 20 minutes per frame and click and try to say, this is a trash can. This is a human. This is another car. This is a tree because they need that high quality data when they didn't realize they needed it first. And that's, that's not what we have to do with those captures all the time. Like when you're logging in and it's like, pick every picture that has a bus in it and you're just helping Google train their algorithm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, they went away from that because it wasn't high enough quality. Oh, really? Um, they actually have to say the exact outline of it now, if they're going to make these self-driving car yeah. things a reality. And so well, that's basically what we're providing to these companies is mm -hmm. a way to classify and annotate their data but it's actually adding value. It's not costing them value to do that. Yeah. Because now you've got this very nice capacity line that allows you to do exception-based surveillance. And so what we do is we rank every well in the company and you can drill down very rapidly to the wells you care about. Each, and you can select any time range. You can say for the last two weeks or the last two days or yesterday, which wells deviated the most from their expectation. There's only three root causes. One is that you actually had a variance that you need to classify and go do something about. The second is that your capacity was wrong. Maybe you had a workover or a frack hit and you need to adjust that or it was just the wrong slope. And the third is it was an allocation issue. And, and so we have ways to handle all three of those. And the exception-based surveillance is great. You know, that's kind of where people talk about this real-time surveillance and algorithms are going to predict failures, um, you know, a few days ahead of time. Mm -hmm. But what's even more important is the, you know, real engineering production optimization analysis. It's great that I can tell you this ESP is going to failure, what is going to fail. What's more important is to be able to say, um, here's why it's going to be a here's why it's going to fail. Even more important than that is that I shouldn't have been using ESPs for this time period of the well. I should have had gas lift. Mm -hmm. And even more important than that is that I shouldn't have even drilled this well here. I should have drilled it over there. And that's a higher level of engineering. And you get to the point where you say, you know, I should have, I should actually sell this asset because this over here. <laughs> is actually better acreage and mm -hmm. um you know an algorithm by itself isn't going to be able to tell you that you have to get it back to the human mm -hmm. and so that that kind of goes into really at the very core of everything we do with wise rock is about lean mm -hmm. um it's about the plan do check adjust process and that if we want to be able to produce these wells instead of 40 dollars a barrel get it down to 20 eventually we're going to have to treat it you know like the Toyota production system with manufacturing cars. And this is, you know, many in our industry are using um, these concepts where you're looking at it as a repeatable process. Every time you drill a well, every time an ESP fails, every time you um, go and repair a hole in tubing, mm -hmm. you, you make a plan, you do it, and then you check what actually happened, and then you adjust. Mm -hmm. And then you do it over and over and over. And for everything we're doing, whether it's making a production forecast or repairing things, that's how we need to think about what we're doing. And that's what Wise Rock enables. Because you can see what, how much production you're losing due to frack hits right now. You can say, why don't we put ESPs on right after the frack hits so we can pump the water off? Why don't we go to string fracks and why don't we do X, Y, Z, which people are doing? But they're not tracking very well the impact and looking at the correlation between what happened and what didn't. And until that loop is closed, then it's gonna be very difficult to make you know, those big changes in our industry. Yep. 100% agree. Now, before we close up this episode, let's talk about your team and the position that you guys are in right now. Did you bootstrap and, you know, code all this by yourself? Do you have any other co-founders? I think you guys are about to raise your first round of capital, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yeah. 
Well, um, so like I said, there's some very neat things about um, Wise Rock and the way we want to raise money. Um, we realized that you know, we were planning on trying to grow through revenue. And now due to the downturn, um, we realize that that's not going to allow us to grow as fast as we can, even though this is what we believe the industry really desires right now is this type of tool. Mm-hmm. And so we do plan on you know raising a seed round of some type right now. However, um, with Wise Rock, we kind of have a bigger vision than just doing production optimization. Like I was talking about before, there's kind of a different way we're designing software at this point. That's really about um, closing that loop between the way people work and the way machines work. And that mm-hmm. has to do a lot with data visualization. And basically what, what we believe is that there's a certain design pattern we're using here that is really about tightly, tightly embedding the principles of data visualization in any business process. And that if we can um, kind of generalize these processes to be used in other industries even, and definitely across other domains in oil and gas, that this could really change the way that a lot of different B2B software is built. Mm-hmm. Instead of going straight to AI, that you would you would really focus on um, building these systems that that work the way that work with the way the human mind works. Um, it's yeah. kind of like the difference between you know being Will Smith and iRobot, where he sees the machine working on its own, mm-hmm. versus you know being Robert Downey Jr. and Iron Man, where you step into the suit and you feel ten times more powerful than mm-hmm. you did the day before. And that's how our customers feel, and that's what they can see whenever they see our product. Demo. I think that's really important. You know, building tools and software that enable people to do their job better and more efficient and faster mm-hmm. you know there's a transition we're not going straight to you know a world of robots and algorithms and ai i mean right now we need solutions that actually empower employees of a company to be better at their jobs right right love it so you guys going to be looking at doing a seed round here soon um where can people find you guys online do you have a website yeah can find so, you on LinkedIn? Uh, wiserocksoftware.com is right. our website exactly right. awesome so we'll put a link to that in the show notes uh we'll also put a link uh, are you on linkedin um yes yep. okay all right so we'll put a link to your linkedin Perfect. on our show notes as well so if you guys are interested either in um if you're interested in investing in wise rock you can reach out if you guys are from emp interested in uh, seeing their software and what they built out Feel free to reach out to Brock, um, either through their website or on LinkedIn. Brock, I appreciate you coming on the show, man. Yeah, I know. Thank you all. Uh, if you like the show, uh, go to, uh, there's, a, there's a link in the show notes, rate this podcast forward slash digital wildcatters. We need some five-star reviews, please. Need some five-star reviews. We've got some trolls who are coming in, one stars, you know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, we'll catch you guys in the next episode. Come, come, come.